Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and the name of this show is Courage to Hope. And tonight we have one of our special guests. We have Joanne Peterson, who is the founder of Learn to Cope back in 2004. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. It's good to see you again. So I assume a lot has been going on in the past year. But um, for those who are not familiar with Learn to Cope, could you give us an idea of what's happening there and what it's all about. Sure. So we're um, Learn to Cope is a statewide organization for families that um, have had sons or daughters or spouses or siblings um, that have battled the opioid crisis, as well as other addictions. I mean, we don't just deal with or help families that are their loved ones are using opioids. It could be alcohol. Um, we we see a lot of um, stimulant use out there. Um, sometimes people will come; they've just caught their kids using marijuana. So it's just basically any um, addiction. Really, alcohol affects the families. Um, so we're there for the families. We have um, support groups all over Massachusetts uh, since COVID. Uh, we had to shut those groups in person down for two years, but we're back in person with most of our meetings. But we also have Zoom meetings that we have to keep available because during that two years of COVID, we gained so many more members that were too far away or are in other states that are now really bonded with Learn to Cope. So we didn't want to just leave them in the dust. So now we have the Zoom meetings and in-person meetings. Um, we're also a pilot in Massachusetts for nasal naloxone, which is also known as Narcan, which is an, um, a medication that reverses overdose. And we give that out at our meetings and we train people for it um, for free. And it, the, the Narcan is obviously free. We've had, I think, over 280 overdose reversals since we started giving it out in 2010, I believe. Um, we have one, soon to be two, Learn to Cope meetings all in Spanish. So we're able to, uh, we have Magda Colin. There's 15 team members for Learn to Cope. I don't do this myself, obviously, um, but Magda is amazing. She is a Latina woman out in Western Mass. Um, so she runs the Spanish bilingual groups. Um, we have another group that's called Still Learning, Still Coping, that Peter Babineau, he's our director of our East Hampton Family Center, which we opened a year ago. I'm super proud of. Um, it's in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Um, Peter Babineau is the director of that program. Um, he also started a unique grief group, which is, as I said, it's called Still Learning, Still Coping. So it's people that have lost one child, but still have another child that's struggling. What Peter found, especially during Zoom, was so many people in that situation that they felt like they didn't belong at either group. Um, they were afraid to go to the regular group for their son or daughter that was 
still battling the addiction because they didn't want to scare everyone there because they had lost another one. So now they have a group where they're with people that are in both situations. And now, you know, that's sadly, um, there's a good amount of people that go to that. So it's sad to think that that's something we even need. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, um, how many, um, how, like how big is that group? Because I, it's not I, enormous, but um, I think the last one I went on, there was like 10 people there. Um, and I know more people that weren't there that I know are in that situation. So it's a population that no one really knows that much about. So um, I assume it'll just continue to grow as, as word gets out, sadly. So, so if I'm a parent with a child who's having issues and um, I've taken a few phone calls. It's this has been the, the week for me. I've had four phone calls in two days with parents with issues, and uh, the, he went into his son's bedroom and he found half a dozen needles buried under the rubbish in his wastebasket. So he's using right at home. Yeah. How would that person get into a Zoom group? Let's say. So all he all he would have to do, and he should, because our meetings are very helpful. Um, is go to our website, which is learn with the number two cope.org. And then at the top of the page, you click on stay connected and that will bring up all of the meetings. And all he has to do is fill out a form, which is completely confidential. Um, and then we match them with the group that's in his area. Um, and he can either go to zoom or in person, he can be from anywhere and go to our groups on Tuesday evenings. We have, a national group that's at nine o'clock at night Eastern time because we're serving people out in the West coast. So there's many, many options. Um, and there's also many, you know, grief groups as well, not through learn to cope, but through sad OD, um, through hope floats, um, a sun will rise there's, there's many, many, um, peer grief groups out there. One of right. the populations that is not served really at all, um, I'm finding and have been finding for many years because my, you know, my niece lost her life to fentanyl a couple of years ago and her son, you know, there's no help for the kids that have lost parents. Some of them have lost two parents. And, you know, we have kids that, I mean, this epidemic alone, not even counting the years before that. Um, but this one alone, the last 20 years, kids have been losing their parents. Now some of them are 18, 20 years old and, you know, living with all this unprocessed grief. Um, there's really no no support for them whatsoever. There's no real specialized therapists out there for them to how to deal with their grief for their parent loss and how they lost their parents. So, you know, that's one of the things that have, has been really gnawing at me to try to get something started for them. Yeah, I can relate to that. My step-granddaughter, she lost my son, and um, who was going to be a stepfather. But then her mother died within two years of the time my son died. And then her biological father died. How old is she? 23. And That's so we had, we had problems with her acting out. And so the three kids ended up in foster care with the grandmother. And now they're back with their mother. But it's tough. She's got to take care of the three kids. And there's, there's one grandparent that's very cooperative. Um, and then there's me. 
who was a great grandparent, you know, um, and so it's it's challenging. And there is, as you said, there's no, um, yeah. there's nothing for them. So getting getting into that, um, yesterday you were part of a meeting, and and can you again tell our listeners what the name of the group was that you were part of that? So that was the Opioid Recovery and Remediation Council Advisory Group. Um, the governor had formed this group a couple of years ago. Um, I want to say a year and a half, maybe. Um, because of all the opioid settlement money that is um, coming to Massachusetts from Attorney General Maury Haley's lawsuits against Purdue Pharma uh, and the Sackler family, there's like, you know, a huge amounts of money coming over a period of nine years just from that. Um, and then all the other lawsuits like Walgreens, um, I'm sorry, Walmart, J&J, um, McKesson, some of the distributors. So there's a large sum of funding coming um, and many towns and municipalities are starting to receive money now. Um, and it's up to those towns and municipalities to figure out what they're going to do with that money. But one thing I can tell you is it can only go to combating the opioid crisis it can't go to potholes in the road and fixing things like that it has to go to um you know helping victims in the community um the purdue money a lot of that from the they call it ORF, o-r-r-f meetings um we've already put like some of the money towards harm reduction towards mass and cast trying to you know battle that um for low threshold housing, um, many different coalitions and programs around the state that are, you know, frontline workers that are out there serving the people that are literally out in the streets that are victims of, you know, the opioid crisis. So, you know, there's nine, there's 20 of us. So I'm one, one of 20. Um, and I was appointed by the attorney general's office. So she was able to appoint three people and governor Baker of appointed three people. The rest on the committee are people that were appointed from different um, mayors around the state um, or state representatives, you know, people from the communities that that can help figure out where this money should be spent. Well, I, I actually have a lot of questions about that. Um, first of all, the Purdue money, there was a lot of individual lawsuits from parents who lost children. Um, yeah. Where, where, when is that money coming or is it coming? Um, I know that the, it's still tied up in the bankruptcy court. So I don't really have an answer for you on that one. Um, I do know that a lot of the people that have individual lawsuits, they had to painstakingly um, completely prove that their family member was prescribed Oxycontin. So, um, and as Maura Haley always said, it was going to be a pretty insulting amount of money that they were going to get. Um, and, you know, like I've heard from many of the parents that there's no amount of money that's ever going to bring their person back. Um, but, you know, I don't know exactly when they will start getting their settlements. I'm not sure about but that. But they, they still haven't. I mean, I've never received any notification or anything. You didn't get any notification? 
nothing to even prove that giving me the option of proving, which I could could do. And you so, filled out the claim? Did you oh, fill out the claim? Oh, yeah. I filled out actually seven of them because I did it with six other sets of parents. And we haven't heard a thing from anyone. So my advice on that would be to call the AG's office and ask for Jillian Rayner um, and and see if you can get an update on that. Uh, that I don't know about. That that really that isn't really discussed on these ORF meetings. This is mainly for this money that's going out to the communities, um, you know, around Massachusetts. This is so. This that, is that separate. Brings me to something there. Um, I know do they do that by population. In other words, does a town like Lawrence get so much, and then town like Duxbury gets so much based on population of the town, or Plimpton gets even less because they only got. 7,800 people or something. I think they go by that. And then also probably the, the, um, the data of fatalities that the town has experienced. Yeah. What I, what I, after listening to the group yesterday and anybody who's out there, when they have these meetings, you can go on to the mass.gov website and mm -hmm. And listen to them. You can't say anything, but you can at least listen and watch because it's on Zoom. Um, I didn't see or hear anybody who was really involved where they had lost a child that was on the committee mm -hmm. or somebody who's got one, two, three kids possibly still suffering from the addiction. Um, it seemed like they were all kind of professional people working for the different towns and things. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I didn't see the, the, um, the kind of a, a motion or attack traction to the, to anybody wanting to make sure that the money goes to specific things. Mm -hmm. it, it seemed like it was an hour and a half of generality talk. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of medical people, um, a lot of coalition leaders. Um, I will say I am a family member that's been affected. So and you're I the only one that, that appeared yeah. to be on the committee. Yeah. But I do believe, you know, where we have so many families within Learn to Cope, I think they sort of rely on that. But I do agree with you. We should always have people with lived experience at the table. Um, I don't know you know, what the reasoning was with other municipalities on why they didn't choose people from their communities. Um, that's, you know, that was up to them. So I just know, you know, my appointment was from the attorney general's office who I've worked with her on this Purdue Farmer stuff since before she was even the attorney general. So I think, um, but I do believe that there are some people out there that probably you know, could bring a lot to the table. Um, and one thing too is, is uh, you, you say it does goes by town. So let's take Hope Floats in Kingston. Mm -hmm. And if you're Denise Brack, do you, do you only go to the town of Kingston? Could give you money or it should be like coming from she the should state. talk to her town administrator. She should talk to her town hall and ask how much money they've been given. Um, you can go to the mass.gov website and look. I believe there is a list there somewhere on what each town has received. So people should contact their town town hall offices and find out who in the town is getting the money and where it's going to go and join their well, efforts. But what I wanted to say is that that's only for the town of Kingston. 
What about the people from Plymouth and Duxbury and Cohasset and Bridgewater that are all going to Hope Floats that are using the services for grief the counseling? They you'd have to go to all the different towns. That's why I'm saying somebody they should have certain organizations like yours even that should be getting the money. In my opinion, you should do it that way as opposed to having one town say, oh, yeah, Duxbury, what are they going to give to to Hope Floats in Kingston? And, you know, they say, well, it's a Kingston thing. You know, you understand where I'm coming from there? It just I seems do. like not a good oper- a good way of doing it. You know, it's like, because um, it, if somebody has a, like in uh, Plimpton, which is a real small town, they have a, they have a place where men go, or women go that are in a, like a halfway house. Mm-hmm. And, they need funds to operate the house, let's say. Um, it, again, they're servicing four or five surrounding areas because the men come from all different towns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the town of Plimpton wouldn't probably have that kind of money, or would they? Well, one of the things that I bring up is there's not enough places for women. There's an abundance of men's halfway houses everywhere. In fact, in the town of Falmouth, there's 180 there are 180 halfway houses, and almost all of them are for men. <laughs> but we have many? nowhere for women and children. So those are some of the things I bring up. Um, and, you know, I mean, you have to really vet them, too. Some of them are excellent, and some of them are not. Um, so I, I think, you know, I agree with you. I, I think everybody's voice should be at the table. I don't know who chose... Um, from each town who made the decision on who they had on there. I know a lot of the people on there are pretty brilliant. Um, there's a woman on there who works with people coming out of incarceration. She's an attorney. I mean, we need that. A lot of people come out of incarceration and they're just left to the streets. They, they have no support. Um, you know, they need housing. They need to be able to get a job again. They need, that kind of support. And a lot of times when they don't get that, they relapse and either die or go back to jail. Um, So I I am proud of a lot of the things that that the money has gone to. This is over nine years. So this was just at the very beginning, very beginning. Um, And also Maureen Kavanaugh is also on there and she's a, a mom of someone who suffered from opioid. So there are people on there with lived experience. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was with Sheriff McDermott last night from Norfolk County. Yeah. And, and, and he has a terrific program where when he said 80% of his inmates are there for drug charges. Yeah. And he wants, you know, he has a, a real good program. And then when they get out, he follows up on them and everything. That's but, what we need to fund, things like that. That's what I'm saying. And so that mm-hmm. wouldn't go to a town. That would go to the county, you know. So it's a county event. No, but the town, I mean, he could go to the town and join whatever meetings they're having about this money, and he should. I mean, anyone anyone that's wondering where this money is going in their town needs to contact their town offices, their mayor or their local town coalition and find out what's going on, who you're talking to, what, you know, um, and then there has to be accountability for the money, too. Um, yep. We did have Franklin Cook and um, from Sad OD come to one of the opioid meetings and talk about, you know, all of the families that have lost loved ones and you know where's the support for that. And well, yeah, uh, I mean, 
I know three women who have lost two children. Yeah. They just live on the South shore and, mm-hmm. and they need, they need professional therapy. Right. And, and you know, that's something that we have a real lack of. There's a huge gap. Um, and that's something we've talked about too, for, for parents, families, and families that have people struggling too. Um, or young people who've lost parents and the workforce doesn't have enough to go around that specialize in this kind of trauma. And, you know, like I've said in the past, and I say all the time, it's almost like we should be approaching, you know, like Simmons College or, you know, different schools and create some sort of fellowship program for people to create a workforce that can help these populations, our families. I'm one of them. I, I mean, I lost my brother. I lost my niece, <laughs> but you know, I've been, my family's been wrecked by this, but today they're, everyone's okay. But um, we never had any therapy or anyone to help us with that, that, or if we did, you know, in the, in the very beginning, I was actually teaching them more about the opioid epidemic than you know, it was just like, I might as well just start my own group and, you know, meet other parents because there was no, there's no answers for any of us. There never will be. Um, It's just, we have to learn how to cope with it and survive it and become advocates and fight for change. Well, yeah. Well, I think the biggest change is it's going to, it's going to never come until I think again, going back to the the money, um, there's absolutely zero on TV talking about the danger of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And fentanyl, fentanyl is people should all know by now, but they don't. That one one experience, and they could die. Yeah, the drug dealers are certainly not scientists, and they're not chemists, and they don't know how much fentanyl to mix in with the drugs. Yeah. And and a lot of times they have too much and take one pill at a party. I mean, when I was younger, they, we, I know they beat up on the tobacco industry. And we finally, we finally had TV commercials that smoking causes cancer. Yeah. It finally happened. It took only 25 years. Why, <laughs> why wouldn't we have commercials now saying, if you take uh, cocaine or marijuana or, anything from off the street, never mind opioids, mm-hmm. you know, the chances of that being laced with fentanyl are much better than you win in the lottery, you know, oh, and the lottery yeah. you don't want to win. And so don't do it, you know, and just do something and just show a cemetery stone or something and say, this is where you'll end up yeah. if you're not one of the lucky ones and just start getting this thing going. And that, that to me would be the where I would put a lot of the money that's coming into the state. And again, but then you'll have other people saying, what about the Just Say No campaign? That didn't do anything. No, that's terrible. Because, you know, like, to, this is understand. your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And I used to laugh at that commercial when I was a kid. Yeah. We, the two we eggs frying in the pan. Like, the, I think what we're finding is a lot of those scare tactic prevention methods don't really work because the kids are well, still trying to try things. Yeah. It's almost need like. To, just need to make an anise. That's all. You need, they need to hear from the actual people that it's happened to, which is, you know, people that have found recovery, 
that they can relate to that are not that are you know close to their age not obviously a teenager but um and then I just feel the fentanyl that's been out there for way too long. I'm, my niece died of it four years ago. And it drives me crazy because all these people are saying, oh, this fentanyl, like it just came out. It's been out there. That's what killed Janine four years ago. And we haven't had heroin for four years. It's all been fentanyl. And that's why things like the test strips, which is really controversial, people hate it. But at the same time, if somebody's already using fentanyl every day, they're not going to stop. They're not. So what we've done with different things, like with Rise, um, they bought tons and tons and tons of test strips to give out to the people in the streets so that they can test their drugs to see how potent it is to keep themselves alive because they can't stop using it or they'll get really sick, but they can test it and make sure they don't die. I know that is very controversial. Um, but at the same time, they're not going to just stop. We wish they would, but they can't. They can't. It's yeah. almost they're, physically impossible unless you want to be, you know, if you've ever had the flu times 100, who who wants that? So that's what people don't really understand. Um, And this is, I'll tell you, I've been out in this fight for 20 years. Yes. And be, being on... Being on this committee is not easy because I'm one voice of 20. And, you know, people will call me and say, you need to say this and you need to say that. Believe me, I I try as much as I can. And I'm, I do have to say a lot of the money has been put to very good use. There's still so much more coming. Um, but we can't just give it out willy-dilly either. We have to be very strategic and, you know, make sure that whoever whatever organization gets it or whatever, that they're actually going to use it to make a difference and actually be able to um, be transparent and to also um, show results. Like, you know, what you've done with this money, it, it has resulted in this. Or, you know, that's with any amount of money that's being given out from any grant and this money i feel is sacred because it's coming from um a lot of people that lost their lives it's coming from an ag who had the guts and the courage to sue the hell out of all of these um really greedy pharmaceutical companies and district distributors um and actually this is nationwide. It's not just Massachusetts getting money. And what I heard yesterday is Massachusetts is the first committee that's actually taken some of the money and spent it. So I think it's like 11 million we've already done on harm reduction with more to come. I know right now there's like $65 million sitting in a bucket. You know, it's a lot. Um, everyone's going to have an opinion on where it should go. It's it's um it's a lot of pressure um, but I'm glad to be a part of it. Uh, I do feel like the people that have lost their lives and their children, there needs to be something out there to help those kids, and something out there for prevention. Um, 
and to make hold programs accountable to make sure that there aren't so many gaps in treatment and um and therapy like you said there isn't any there there's no, there, like nothing what what i'd like to see is a priority list mm-hmm. and have it if you even if you take your 21 people and vote on it well did see, you look at all of the documents on the mass.gov because there is a priority list oh no i have not done that so i okay so you should go back if you um maybe i can i don't know if i can share my screen but um if you go to mass.gov and key in opioid recovery and remediation fund you'll see all the meeting minutes and you'll see documents of focus groups that we had where we did make things priorities um and you'll see families in there you'll see the word families um throughout it all um and when it's support for families that means grieving families and families that have people struggling not one or the other we clump that together um but there are i mean we have mass and cast which has been a huge problem for a long can you, time can you explain what that means so mass and cast is down in boston that area down um on malena oh, and mass avenue and okay now i know what you mean yeah so all the, the unhoused um and they're all really struggling and you know there were fires there they were dying in the streets it's not perfect but a lot of this money went towards getting them off the streets and into housing where they're safer um and you know more harm reduction workers out there you know trying to help them doing wound care um they have open wounds there's um a spread of hiv hep c um so it's not perfect and it's not gone but it's been widely reduced um and again some people are like oh that's a waste of time well that those are human beings <laughs> yeah those, those are human beings there um and when i'll say it when they shut down long island bridge and quincy and tore that bridge down and shut down all those programs that's where you ended up with this so and oh, yeah. that was what 2015 that when that happened yeah those you have some- a re- yeah and you just can't that's like when they opened up the the um, hospitals for the mentally ill. Where did they think these people were going when they closed them? You know, right? They all end up in the streets and in the woods, yeah. and you know, it's really sad. And you know, sometimes you have to meet people where they are. Like I like I explained earlier, if you're doing heroin or fentanyl every day, all day, you can't just stop. So we have to find a way to hopefully coax someone into eventually stopping but keeping them safe while they can make that decision so that's what a lot of the funding has gone to first because that was an that's an emergency um i know we just voted yesterday it was on the meeting to put aside two million dollars for another emergency fund and there's like 65 million right now um you know to expand more programming um the more programming for people to get medication if they need it um like the low barrier housing outreach and engagement um they're also looking at student loan forgiveness for people in recovery that want to get into the field um that because honestly and i know you've seen it i know i've seen it and and that's people in recovery 
if they went to school or wanted to go to school to get into the workforce to help people seeking recovery, that would be huge because there's that peer element like we have in our meetings. I would much rather talk to somebody that gets, you know, what it was like, what I went through um, over the three or four years before I started learning to cope, trying to save somebody and being judged and stigmatized and, you know, all of the above. I, um, you know, having people that have been there becoming the people that can help the people that are there. So I think that was a brilliant idea of offering, you know, fellowships for people to go, go to school that are in recovery from this. Yeah. I've seen, I, I, you know, trade schools probably be the best approach Yeah, because that's where you can get into it. And there's a shortage, there's a shortage of everything in this country now, you yeah. know, so especially electricians and plumbers and people mm -hmm. that, that provide services and um, even people that are going to work in, nursing homes and um, right all kinds of things but the biggest the bigger thing like you talked about with the colleges is um, social workers yeah people. I have a I have a tenant who uh, has a company and he has um, probably seven therapists on his payroll but he's got 85 kids on a on a wait list because wow. there's just not enough therapists to go along with the and I and I'm looking. I see these kids, and I'm telling you, if if somebody gave them a prescription by mistake or something happened, I could see that this would be the group that would be yeah. right out there again, you know, because they got other problems, and they would they somebody gives them opioid for their teeth being taken out or something, and yeah, all of a sudden they say, "Wow, this is a great way of you know, I didn't know I could be this happy or I could live like this," and yeah, you know, and that's what happens. They feel like they've been kissed by God for God's sakes when they you know get that high so you know all this money is coming from CBS and you said you know Wal Walgreens no paid. Walmart I, I I meant Walmart Tiva. No, Walgreen, Walgreen in Florida had to pay huge yeah. amount of money and so it's mostly the drug stores and it's anybody who was distributing opioids to any degree yeah. um, legal companies but they, they, they haven't been shamed at all, to, in my yeah. words. You know, you hear it, but you don't know why. You know, the right. CBS had a deal with, with McKesson, not McKesson, but McKenzie. Yeah. The big, uh, what is it, what do you call them? Uh, the, Distributors? No, no, the consultant group, McKenzie, the consultant. Oh. Not in there. You know, they had a deal with Purdue Pharma where they were given rewards for for putting so many people on opioids. I know. Keeping them on. You know, I mean, uh, I think if everybody knew that their local CBS was doing that, I think they'd have a different approach towards them. Mm -hmm. I know there's no other alternative because every every drug company and then the look in your drugstore, you look at how much product is made by Johnson & Johnson. Right. And then you think, well, Johnson & Johnson was the biggest supplier of opioids in the whole world. You know, they bought acres and acres of farmland in Tanzania and and they're producing all the poppy seeds and they're doing all this stuff, you know, and if people got a better chance to know some of that stuff, I think they'd have a little, at least they'd be a little bit of cautiously aware. Yeah. Um, and we, how do, you know, again, all this, all this money that's going out there, I, yeah. I just think 
my number one priority would be for recovery. Well, these towns, these towns and municipalities have to apply for it too. And a lot of them are not. So people should be contacting their town offices and saying, did you apply for, for the, um, you know, the remediation recovery money? Um, because it just Walmart alone, it's like $24 million over, I think it's over a three year period is coming. Um, and then Tiver is like 32 million and that's like 13 payments of 2.5 million or something like that. So they have to apply for it. And some of them are not. Because, well, again, let's take a town like Duxbury or situate these towns that don't have any recovery centers. They need to get people that live in those towns and form coalitions and start talking about what they need in their town. But nobody wants a recovery center in their backyard, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't know if recovery center is even just all the answer to everything either in the backyard. I mean, they could, they can actually work with other towns. They can partner with other towns. That's that's what they should be doing because otherwise they won't ever be able to put it all together. Yeah. So, um, Joanne, what motivates you to keep oh. you going? I mean, I, I've seen that you were on in the, in the movie Dope Sick. You were, you, you were one of the people who testified. Yeah. And um, you're, yeah. you're speaking down in Washington all the time and doing all kinds of things. And uh, how does, how does Joanne get motivated every day? I think it could, because it affected my life so much ever since I was a 10 year old girl. Like I said, my brother, I miss him every single day. He died 10 years ago, but um, I guess it was sort of embedded in me when I was a little girl. My mom, um, we used to try and help him and his, this was before opioids. His addiction was cocaine and alcohol. And this was in the seventies. And, um, you know, he'd go in and out of incarceration um, and people never understood it. And he was like the most handsome, like smart, like awesome, big hearted guy. But he would just, you know, it was probably depression. And back then you didn't hear the words depression. It was, you know, either you're crazy or you're a drunk, you know, like there was never any help ever back then either. And, you know, um, I would go visit him in jail with my mom. And then, you know, my sister um, was an alcoholic as well. And then she ended up with schizophrenia and that kind of took her away from us completely. She's like, today she's in a nursing home, just like, she's not even, you can't even really communicate like a regular conversation with her. So I've lost a lot of people in my life um, from mm. being a little girl. And then I grew up and, you know, created my own life. And then it happened again with one of my kids. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) this is not happening again. So, but it did. And, um, but I decided at that point that I was going to learn as much as I possibly could about there's got to be a way, there's got to be something I can do. I'm not going to just watch him ruin his life. And, um, and I was lucky he found recovery and, you know, today's still there. But then my niece, you know, she ended up, she died four years ago. So 
I guess what you could say is what motivates me is my pain. I'm one of these people. Um, yep. I'm not just a figurehead when I'm on these meetings. I am one of these people and I'm a fighter. Um, so luckily I've taken my fighter heart and put it to good use because I'll be the first one to raise my hand when I see someone or something that's not right or not working well, I, I'm not afraid to say it. So, um, doesn't make me a lot of friends all the time with, and that's fine with me. <laughs> you can either love me or hate me. I will fight for your kid or, you know, the child that lost a parent. Um, and I learned along the way too, that I, um, like when I started learn to cope in 2004, I wasn't planning on starting learn to cope. I just needed help. But then I started like really uh, formalizing our meetings and I started training people and I, I don't have just anyone run our meetings. I have people that can treat people with respect, people that aren't know-it-alls that none of us know it all. Um, people that can offer resources. I have guest speakers in recovery. That's the best speaker that you can get is somebody that's lived it. Um, I've had, you know, state legislators, I've had book authors, um, and then the whole Purdue Pharma thing, I started that. Well, that's how I met Ed Bish years ago and that whole crew is um, I started really wanting to fight that pharmaceutical company. Um, I protested a doctor down the Cape, me and a bunch of parents that was actually selling Oxycontin to his, he was he was prescribing Oxy to, to people all over the state. And then he was buying his own prescriptions back. But we went and protested in front of his office and he ended up getting arrested. Well, he came flying out after us first. I think this was in like 2005. And um, he attacked a reporter. And then like two weeks later, he was arrested um, and he had patients records and open pill bottles all in his trunk, open alcohol containers. And it turned out, um, after our protest, the head of the mass medical board chartered a private plane home to suspend his license. Then he was arrested two weeks later and it turned out he ended up in jail and it turned out that he was prescribing, um, one third of all the Oxycontin prescriptions in, in the entire state of Massachusetts. So that's when I got involved with the Purdue Pharma fight. That's how I said, you know what? I'm going after this company. And then, you know, the feds started going after them. And that's when um, I ended up being, there was 19 of us that testified at their sentencing in 2007, which the word sentencing, really, you can't use. It was more like we found out later. If you watch the show, The Memo, it's on Amazon Prime, I believe. Um, you'll find out why they didn't go to jail. It was disgusting. There was some back-end deals that went on with some state legislators and stuff to keep them from going to jail. Even the judge said that day, I am so sorry that I can't sentence anyone to jail. But um, that's when I met Ed Bish and they ended up having to pay, and this was in 2007, Purdue Pharma had to pay a $600 million fine, which is like pennies to them. And Massachusetts, 
Oh, and they and they each of the executives got five years probation. And Massachusetts got a hundred thousand dollars out of that. And that hundred thousand dollars was not spent on anything to do with opioids. It went all to like tobacco um campaigns and stuff. So I was really angry about that. And then, you know, that's how um you know, Mitt Romney was governor and then Deval Patrick was governor. And then Maura Healy was running for governor and she contacted me and she really was interested in this whole Purdue thing. So she wasn't even the attorney general. I'm sorry, I, I should say attorney general. She was running for attorney general. Um, and she contacted me and I started talking to her about Purdue and she was talking to families and everything. And she's the first AG in the country to ever sue that family personally. Um, so I've been, I've been involved in a lot of the, the fight from behind the scenes. Um, so that's how I ended up with the whole dope sick thing. You know, you see a picture of all of us after the show, but um, you know, I was in that courtroom that you saw on dope sick and, you know, they had actors obviously playing people, but, yeah. I'll never forget Lee Nuss holding her son's ashes up. I was there. I thought she was going to throw them at him. It was just super powerful, you know, because she said it took me 11 years to conceive this child in your company one year to take him out. So, you know, back in those days, we never knew that, you know, there was going to be some, I mean, Hulu didn't even exist back then. We didn't even have cell phones back then. <laughs> like, no, you, you, you said the memo, but did you mean the movie Dope Sick? No, there's another, it's not a movie. It's a documentary called The Memo. Memo, okay. Um, I believe it's on Hulu. It might still be on Hulu or Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. But Barry Meyer, who wrote the book Painkiller, if anyone's ever read that, that's a really good book. Um, but if you Google The Memo, I think you'll be able to find it somewhere. It's... Um, there was a, a whole memo that we knew nothing about that was already decided that they were not going to get jail time. And we were all, I mean, we drove 14 hours to get there, me and a bunch of other parents, not knowing that they weren't going to get jail time all along. Well, speaking of jail time, the, the last time I I saw you, we were in Washington, D.C., yeah. in front of the, the um, attorney general's office. And, the um, DOJ, yep. DOG, IJ, and um, everybody was we're kind of hoping that that um, the DOJ is going to press charges against Richard Sackler and company. Yeah, uh, where do we stand with that? Did they are they even doing an investigation? Well, I don't know. I I don't. I heard the last I heard from um, Ed Bish who is a father that I think you've met yes. um, that there were, you know, there was talk behind the scenes that there might be some criminal charges. I know there's evidence, but I haven't heard anything or any updates on that lately. I don't know if much is really being done about that. They're spending all their time going after party one. Yeah. That's you know, like, and then, I talked to Rick Montcastle, who was doing that um, that deal, and he came on my show. Oh, and, did he? Uh, yeah, Rick was a nice guy, and yeah, he told me that you know, right up to the last minute, they were going to squash the whole thing. 
you know, they weren't going to even have felony charges or anything because somebody from behind the scenes was trying to stop it from happening. Yeah. At least, at least they got it to to get to that point, you know, and they finally got something done. But yeah. in, even after that, the Sacklers, after 2007, they ramped it up and they they doubled and tripled their yeah. whole operation and they started taking billions of dollars out of the company. So they, they knew that it was bad and everything was coming and going, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's amazing the amount of money that they've probably spent on attorneys and everything. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, they don't want to admit any wrongdoing, so they have to do it the way they pay the attorneys instead. Yeah. So going back to the very beginning, so if somebody's listening to the show and they have a child that's in got a problem situation, um, what would you, uh, how do they, again, how do they get a hold of Learn to Cope? So all they have to do is go to, they can go to our website, um, learn with the number two cope.org. Click on stay connected. It's like a tab at the top of the page and fill out a form and we connect them with a meeting or they can just call. Um, the phone number is 508-738-5148. Okay. And can they be part of a meeting without having to say anything? Can they just oh, yeah. be in a meeting? and No one's expected to say anything. Um, they can just sit and listen. Um, you know, no one's going to ask them any questions. It's very confidential. Um, it's just supportive. There's just, I mean, on the meeting last night, the national meeting, um, you know, it's been going for like a year, September, and I'm already starting to see some good results for some of the families there. Like one woman, you know, has been waiting for a long time for her daughter to make the decision to go. And now she's gone to treatment. So, you know, a lot of times um, just being around other parents and learning about different resources or um, just getting the courage to do, to have interventions with your kids or, or different ways of coping with it at home. It can make a huge difference in not only their lives, but, um, their kids' lives. And we see that happen all the time. Obviously, we still deal with a lot of um, fatalities. Uh, I was just at my friend Cheryl's daughter's funeral the day before Thanksgiving, and she had already lost her son, Derek, not long before, five years ago, I believe. Um, so we can't, unfortunately, save everybody, but we can at least be there for each other and just, you know, survive it so we've gone after the drug companies but now we have the cartels from mexico bringing in um bringing some of it's china too i mean it's been coming both you, of them. Can, you can order it right on the internet and have it delivered right to your house and, and so i i assume that when you get i i always thought that fentanyl when the dea offices were in in touch with somebody with fentanyl, if the powder got on them, they would die. So how do you know? How would anybody even know how strong it is? Yeah. Um, that has kind of grown legs a bit. Um, that's not always the case because if that were the case, we'd have a lot more deaths. Um, it's definitely dangerous, <laughs> but 
But sometimes the whole hazmat suit and stuff isn't as necessary as people think. I mean, people are using it every day and not dying right away. Or if that were the case, if you touched it and died, then we wouldn't even have, I mean, there would be, the numbers would be even higher. It's definitely dangerous. Um, but, you know, when we legalized marijuana, we took away, um, we used, the cartels have been sending marijuana over here for decades. And now that we process it here ourselves, we took that financially away from them. So that's when they started doing the fentanyl. So, you know, it's been going on, like I said, for at least four or five years. Suddenly everyone's like this new thing, fentanyl. It's not new. It's been yeah. happening for years and people are finally learning about it. And so I, I, it drives me nuts when people act like this is a new issue. This has been an issue for a long time. Um, you know, even when Trump was president, we were losing people to fentanyl. Um, and, it, you know, it's not just being walked over the borders. It's coming on ships. It's coming, you know, in containers on ships. It's coming from the dark web, internet, through the mail. Um, so there's a lot more to that fentanyl story than most people know. Yeah, I don't think hardly any of it comes across the border on with somebody carrying it with them or something. They think that's lame. That drives me crazy when people say it's the, the 20 people running across the river on the border. It's not, it's a no, lot bigger than that. They don't have the money to do that, to buy it or carry it. You know, they, I, yeah. there's, there's tens of thousands of trucks across the border every single day. Mm -hmm. They're obviously packed in with something else and it just keeps going through without any issue. Um, well, it only one, takes a very small amount you know, and they cut it with other drugs and it only takes a very tiny amount. So, you know, the amount of money people make on it is absolutely huge. That's comical. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, I talked to a DEA agent once that said to me that a lot of it is even people get paid off. People that work on borders get paid off. Um, money talks, greed talks. So, a lot of times it's our own people allowing it in. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about safe injection sites? Well, I'm, you know, it's definitely controversial. It's probably going to happen. Um, I think people are trying to do everything they can to like slow the death down. I did visit five of them in Canada and three of them I didn't. I wasn't happy with at all because it was more um, there wasn't really anyone there talking to them or counseling them um, and giving them options to go to treatment. Um, but two of them there did have doctors and nurses and people that did wound care and things like that and, and actually gave them options to go to treatment. Um it's it's just controversial. It's it's going to happen though, so it doesn't matter how people feel. It's coming. So I think it's a good idea because if you can't, if you're not going to give free medicine to people or free recovery, and you have to rely on insurance and nobody's going to pay for it, then the best second number thing to do is to at least save them at least by having it in a they're injecting in a place where somebody's right handy with Narcan. And they can test the drugs before you use them. And 
Um, the two that you liked, were they in Bank, Great British Columbia or in Ontario? Um, I believe we went to Toronto. We were in Toronto. So you, you did most of it in that area, Ontario. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, I in New York, and it's up, it's in Rhode Island too. So, um, and I, if there's people there that will help them with, like Rise has done, you know, the housing, get them off the streets and, you know, have people, harm reduction workers that will say, if you're ready to go to treatment, I can help you go. You yeah, know? I was going to say in, in, in Canada, where they have socialized medicine, does everybody get to go if they want to go? I'm not sure. I think so. That's that's quite interesting. I never thought of that concept. So if you really wanted to get into treatment, then as long as there's not a, a hundred people waiting for the for the next bed, you know, yeah, that would be good. In COVID, a lot of the um, barriers that people had before getting medicine, um, COVID kind of changed that, like in a good way, because people could do telehealth, you know, right from their phone or, yep. you know, get their medication a lot sooner than before instead of all the heavy restrictions. So, you know, there's a lot of, if you compare today to 20 years ago, it's a whole different world. Well, yeah, definitely. So again, the, the biggest thing to take from, from me is if you have a child or a loved one that's um, got an addiction problem, uh, go find your local learn to cope office. They're all over the state. There, you got one in New Hampshire too, don't you? And one in Florida. Um, so. it's it's actually a, a chapter that meets. Um, yeah, there's one in Florida, and then they meet us. Um, it's funny because through the um, Zoom, we kind of had to combine a bunch of our different meetings together because we couldn't hold like 27 meetings in four days every week. So. Yeah. The Florida parents are really bonded with our Cambridge and Franklin meeting. So when it was time to go back in person, they didn't want to leave each other. So what we do now is one week it's in person and everyone's in Cambridge and Franklin and Florida. And then the next week they're all together on Zoom. <laughs> so we have it so that there's always a Zoom meeting and that they don't have to, you know, they can stay connected with each other. Um, so it's it's quite a... You know, it's quite a bond. It's the, the groups people don't want to ever have to join, just like the grief groups. People don't ever want to have to join those either, you know. Yeah. But no, Sato D, D does a good job with them. And that stands for sub, um, support after substance passing or something like that. And they have uh, peer grief allies. So if somebody loses their loved one they can connect them with someone else that lost their loved one but is in a different you know in a place where they can help someone now you know with that as a peer so that's been pretty helpful i i work with franklin and dave yeah. swindell yeah i'm part of that group dave used to come to our franklin meeting yeah, yeah. the thing is that there's just not enough men coming and i know that just in massachusetts there had to be four thousand men in the last two years that were parents of somebody who died and where are these people oh, they're yeah. trying to by themselves and that's why the suicide rate from men 50 to 60 is the highest in the state is and it's um 
it's one of those things where I, I could say people have John Wayne syndrome. And just before we had this session, I was talking to somebody who was, his son did, his son died 30 days ago. And, and he was beating himself up for crying all the time. And I said, don't, don't be doing that. You, yeah. you do whatever you need to do. Let it happen. You know, and that's what we need to do is people need to understand that that's okay. That's part of the grief process. Yeah. You know, we need to give, give them, let them give themselves permission to do that. You know, well, I want to thank you very much. We're just about out of time and I really appreciate, you know, having you come back on again. And I know you're, you're really busy. I, I, I used to think I was busy until I met you. So. Well, I have a lot of, t I have a really good team too. I don't do all this work. I, they do a ton of work, the team behind Learn to Cope. You know, I don't, uh, I'm not as busy as I used to be because I have all them too. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm grateful for that. But. So we've been speaking to Joanne Peterson, who is the founder of Learn to Cope. And we... The name of our show is Courage to Hope. So obviously, Joanne fits right in with the title of our show. She has the courage and she has the hope. So what more could we ask for? And thank you again, Joanne. Thanks, Tony. And it's always good talking to you. <laughs> likewise. And this is Tony LaGreca from Courage to Hope. We'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you.